Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Beth Woolacott. Beth completed her Bachelor of Science in Mathematics at Royal Holloway University of London and then received a four-year studentship from the ESRC DTP and came to Loughborough in October 2017. In her first year at Loughborough, Beth completed a Master's in Social Sciences and is just now beginning her PhD in the second year of her studentship. In this conversation, we discussed, firstly, what is life like doing a PhD in educational research and what tips does Beth have for anyone considering it? And then we turn our attention to Beth's main focus of her research, textbook design, and in particular, exposition. So what do students actually value in a textbook? And I'll tell you what, there are some fascinating insights into the role of things that have appeared on this podcast before, such as the split attention effect, and a new one to me, the importance of active voice. And if this interview whets your appetite for pursuing a PhD, I know it did for me, then I am delighted to say that the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University are currently offering some funded PhD studentships. There's a link in the podcast show notes where you can find out more. 
As ever, I'll be back at the end with a few things I've been thinking about since speaking to Beth, but for now, let's get cracking. Okay, Beth, we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Um, so I found this question a little bit, um, it's a little bit intimidating because um, <laughs> I've, I've heard your other podcasts and they're all very intellectual answers. Um, whereas my, my um, favourite number is four. Um, and that's purely because it seems to be a number that pops up quite a lot in uh, in my life. So my mum and dad's house is number four, and so is my grandparents, and so was my first uni house. Um, and it just seems to pop up all over the place, so I quite like it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. It's a very good answer, and you're in very good company there, Beth, because the only other person who said four is Elizabeth, Dr. Elizabeth Bjork of uh, Desirable Difficulties fame and so on and so forth. So you're in, you're in good company with four. Very, very strong choice there. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> what about question two then what was your favorite topic in maths as a student um so when I was doing a level I really um I really liked t- differentiation um I just liked the formulaicness of it I suppose um and that kind of when I went to uni um I did I did maths at uni and um that kind of made me um really love dynamics of real fluids so I'd say differentiation is probably the, a strong contender there. I just really enjoyed it, especially at, um, at a higher level too. Nice. For the uninitiated, and i.e. me, what, what's dynamics of real fluid? Um, so it's basically just um, using differentiation to um, to look at, well, just look at the waves going through fluid, you know, fluids like water, um, and just looking how at how those waves move along, really. Nice, nice, fantastic. Okay, a final speed dating question, Beth. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research? Um, this one's also um, I I'm not 100% sure really on on thinking about this. I I think one of the things I would like to do is um is to write a book, so maybe be an author and you know like a a novel rather than um something to do with research. Nice. Any any plot in mind? Uh, no, not really, actually. No, I should probably think about that more, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You, you might get some inspiration throughout throughout the conversation. We'll, so we'll see We'll see where we go. Um, <laughs> Beth, is it all right if you just um, give listeners a bit of a sense of your career to date, if that's all right? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a PhD student at Loughborough University at the moment. Um, but before that, um, I've taken quite a linear route, really. So um, I studied maths at A level along with um, physics and ethics and philosophy and music. So quite a varied um, selection. Mm. Um, and then chose to study maths at uni. So I went off to Royal Holloway University of London um, and I studied maths there for three years. Um, and it was getting towards the end of the three years. Um, I'd taken an interest in education. So I'd done a module. Um, on teaching in the classroom where I'd have to go into um, a school in Ascot and teach um, for a term Um, and I started applying to the Teach First teaching scheme and it was then that um, I decided um, I was I was really enjoying it but I I had a lecturer show me an advert for a PhD studentship at Loughborough Uni um, to do with um, maths education and like textbook um, design so um, I thought that was really interesting and I thought I'd go go for it and and see um 
yeah see if I could see if I could get it so I did um and I did get it that's why <laughs> that's where I am now um and yeah so I think I started off with that sort of um interest in teaching um and it kind of led me to Loughborough um and my studentship is a one plus three studentship so um it has a year um a master's year where you learn all about um like research methods um before you like dive into the PhD which was really handy for me because um I obviously doing a maths degree I hadn't written anything in quite a few years I hadn't sort of read any research papers other than like the ones directly related to my degree so um yeah it was really it was really nice having that sort of year to get in into um research properly Fantastic. And how many years into your PhD are you now, then, Beth? Is this your second? Um, I'm just finishing my second, so I'm just coming into my third um, year of my PhD. Um, but my PhD is slightly, slightly different. So um, it's in collaboration with Oxford University Press. Nice. Um, who and a little, little shout out here, Oxford University Press, who are sponsoring this series as well. So this, this is working out really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, they they sponsor. Um, they yeah they sponsor me to do some of my PhD so um, I have a three month internship with them every year where I just go and work with them um, and work on some of their projects um, as a sort of break from the PhD for three months um, and that nice. works out quite nicely so it does mean my PhD is a little bit um, it seems a little bit longer <laughs> than it should be. <laughs> Wow, that's fascinating. And we're going to we're going to talk about your PhD, both generally and, and, and very specifically in a sec. But just before we move on to that, Beth, a question I ask all my guests, and that is uh, just for you to pick out a favourite failure. So this could be a moment from any part of your professional life, but I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan and crucially what you learned from the experience. Um, okay, so I probably have two two answers to this question. One is slightly, um, it was a slightly bigger failure than the other one. <laughs> nice, <laughs> I like it. Um, so um, the, the first one, it was earlier this year, actually, um, I was undertaking an eye tracking, um, an eye tracking investigation. So that's, um, that's a, a study with students at, um, at a school and you use eye tracking technology, which basically just records their eye movements. Um, and it was quite a big study. I went to quite a few stu- um, schools. Uh, it was, yeah, it was um, quite a quite a big deal. And um, I had to randomise the stimuli, um, which was a very important part of the study. Um, and I spent a lot of time using Excel to work out how to randomise it. And <laughs> it was quite it was quite complicated. And um, I was I was quite proud of myself after I'd worked out how to do it. Um, and it wasn't until after when I was analysing the data that I realised that I hadn't pressed this button which activated the randomization oh, so, no. oh, <laughs> um, <no. laughs> I was I was absolutely gutted at the time I thought oh my goodness all of this like work and all of the um, schools participating and all, all of that work had gone to waste but um, actually um, in recent months I've been analyzing the data and it tells me some really interesting stuff about um, how tiredness affects how we read because um, that was one of the effects that came through which made me realize my mistake um, but it also <laughs> it also um, had some really good um, results for um, something that we hadn't predicted but um i found through exploratory analyses which um is something that ties in with another part of my phd so it all sort of tied in well together in the end so it seemed like the end of the world but it was actually um it was okay <laughs> oh god beth are you were you not tempted at that point just to keep it quiet just to say oh because <laughs> you know would, would people find out there did that thought cross your mind or is that completely against the researchers uh, code of ethics 
Um, I think it is completely against uh, <laughs> code of ethics, but um, there was a point, it was just as we hit lockdown as well. So as if things weren't bad enough, I was oh, like, oh no, no my PhD is again, okay. Um, so I have to admit, I, I was tempted just to, just to forget all about it. But yeah. no, um, I think I think these things are, um, it, it's actually interesting because it shows that um, all of the effects that I predicted, they didn't... Um, sort of come about in the way that I wanted them to but they came yes. about because of this order effect which was also quite um quite an interesting result so um yeah I think it definitely definitely worth um sort of looking into into it more and just not sort of accepting that it was non-significant because um because of you know anything um yeah <laughs> so nice. yeah that was that and, was my big my big failure I think <laughs> and and you've got another one as well that you're going to give us that have you yeah, this is another eye tracking one, but this is slightly okay. this is slightly funnier. Although I don't know. If the eye Can I just die. say, Beth? Beth, sorry, yeah. really sorry to interrupt you. Just because this eye tracking, it's come up a couple of times um, in interviews with your colleagues. It's it's a fascinating piece of technology, right? I've only ever heard Colin Foster describe it to me. But can you just share with the listeners what what are we talking about? Is it like a pair of glasses that the students wear or something? Okay, so eye tracking um, can be like many many different forms um, of sort of ways of doing it so um the two ways i've used um are completely um they don't have any like gadgets or eyewear or anything so um the first one that i've used is a one that's on the monitor so it's purely this like um sort of bar it looks like a normal computer monitor Mm. but there's this bar along the bottom um that has these infrared sensors sort of at the bottom of it that look out um and it's really um it's not very intrusive it's just sitting there and it just tracks your eyes as you're as you're reading so it just um it doesn't flash or anything it's just the red the red infrared you can see at the bottom of the screen um and the other one i've used is like a remote eye tracker and that you just clip onto the bottom of a laptop so just at the bottom of the screen and that's a very similar thing so both of those things um they aren't glasses i mean you can get um glasses and i think these days I think they recommend that you have a little chin rest so that your head doesn't move so much because <laughs> yes, um, that, that can cause a quite a lot of um that can cause a bit of error but um yeah it's, it's quite um the the kit's quite neat that's fas- absolutely fascinating and sorry I interrupted you so what, what happened with the with this second favorite failure then oh that's okay um this was the um this was with the eye tracker this was with the one that's on a monitor and um I'd been prepping to run a study and I think a couple of days before I was about to start collecting data, um, I went down to the lab and I tried to turn on the eye tracker and I just couldn't turn it on. And I was <laughs> I was I was so worried. I thought, oh my goodness, have I broken it? And it's not turning on. I've got to start my date my data collection soon. So um I sort of I asked a few colleagues and they were like, Oh yeah, no, it doesn't doesn't seem to be working. And the <laughs> the computer itself was working, but it was just this eye tracking monitor. Um so I um I explained to IT and they were really kind about it and they um they got this new monitor shipped like quick from America you know like pronto they got this wow. this um this monitor for me and then it turned out when they were installing it they realized that there was just this um this like hidden touch screen button <laughs> to oh, turn no. the monitor on <laughs> so yeah I just um yeah and the other one was absolutely fine I just hadn't turned it on (laughs) so I mean I don't know if they've quite forgiven me yet at IT but (laughs) um it was quite a quite a good end to um a story where I thought I'd broken a sort of really expensive equipment (laughs) jeez and you've now two monitors to play with flipping it that's that's (laughs) well I think it got expedited back to America (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Well, Beth, before we move on to, to talking about your research um, specifically, um, you're the first PhD student I think we've ever had um, on this show. And I know that certainly it's something that I've, I've considered over the years. And I, I suspect many teachers have. Perhaps teachers have dabbled doing masters whilst they've been teaching and so on. But I don't know how many have actually taken the full plunge to do a PhD. So I wonder if you can just paint a picture, uh, Beth. Firstly, how does a PhD compare or differ to the masters that you were doing? What what, what are some of these some of the key differences there? Um, so I'd say with the masters, it was very it was very le- um, led. So I had uh, courses every semester um, in different departments. So it was quite a good masters um, because it was a research methods um, in social sciences, yes. um, and they've got quite a lot of social science departments in Loughborough. So I had um, I had um, lectures from the sports science department and from um, the um, politics department and um, the social sciences department itself. So I had quite a lot of different um, variation. Um, And uh, we finished with a dissertation. So that was a 10,000 word dissertation, which was probably the most similar bit to the PhD. So that was having um, one of my supervisors, um, Matthew Inglis. He, um, yeah, he, he, he led me through that dissertation so he was my supervisor on that one um and that kind of led me quite nicely into the phd where um you don't have that that structure of courses um and you're not on your own so much um straight away you've got your supervisors there to help you so like i said i've got matthew and lara alcock um and they're they're my supervisors and they they're really good they you know you can meet with them as much as you sort of need to to begin with and i guess um slowly it starts to fall away from from that structure you had at um the masters because you slowly um don't meet with them so much and it's not like mm-hmm. a conscious decision but it's more of one of those things where um you kind of can crack on on your own until you get to a stumbling block and then you can then you can um email your <laughs> email your supervisors again so um yeah it's kind of it's more um it's more led by you but um you definitely don't feel like you're on your own i mean we do have a great department at Loughborough, so um, the students, um, the PhD students, really help each other um, and support each other quite a lot. But um, so do all of the um, the um, academics as well. They all sort of chip in and give you their advice and support when you're working on something that is particularly um, sort of something they know about. And, and how would your time roughly be divided up, Beth? Maybe perhaps over the course of a month. What what are we talking about for kind of reading and researching on your own versus writing versus kind of being out there designing experiments, running experiments, and so on? What 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 are we talking? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I think especially difficult at the moment because of course it's, um, pandemic. I think one of the things I would say is that um, PhD PhDs do feel quite different at the moment um Mm. I spend quite a lot of my day just staring at a computer screen which is definitely (laughs) not what um what your PhD is like um in reality um so if anyone's just starting a PhD I would say hold on because it does it does (laughs) get better than this um so yeah I think I probably spend the majority of my time um between reading and writing I suppose and um those are two things I really learned how to do in my master's and those are things that you do get better at over time um even even reading it sounds silly but you do you do um improve um at reading because reading academic papers is quite different I think to Mm. um sort of standard reading so yeah I think you you do spend the majority of your time reading and writing especially at the moment and um the the times when you 
um, do your studies and your experiments. Those are the most exciting times, obviously. Um, but those it tends to be more in um, a block of time. So you tend to be doing your experiment and you're um, busy, busy doing all of the um, reading and researching for that to begin with and writing sort of like a proposal. And then once you're doing that experiment, then you have a block of time when you're, you know, just focused into going into schools or um, going into the labs, depending on your experiment. Um, and then after that, you never you have another block of time where you're sort of writing things up and, and reading again. Um, so, yeah, it's quite that you don't tend to have um, too much variation in your day, depending on where you are at yes. at the moment. I mean, at the moment, I'm sort of finishing studies and starting them. So I do have quite a lot of variation, which is quite nice. Um, so it means that you can kind of have a little bit of a varied day rather than staying on the same thing all of the time. I see. And and forgive me if this is a stupid question, Beth, but well, what does it all build up to? Is it is it just like a big dissertation? And then I hear about this this Viva thing that everybody gets seems to get really kind of scared of and stuff. Is is that the big big end to it? And is there any kind of mini assessments as you go through, or, or does it all literally come down to that final piece of work? Yeah, so um, it basically is like a giant um, dissertation. So um, instead of just doing one experiment, you kind of just keep going um, and you're, you know, just keep going in the direction that you want to go into. And sometimes that can be quite difficult and you do have to stop and think where, like, which direction do I want to take this mm. PhD? After a, um, a study, you look at the result you, results you've got and um you know, often they're non-significant or you don't think there's anything exciting in there. Um, and you might have to do some exploratory analyses or you might have something big that you think I want to, you know, take this further and explore. Um, so you kind of are just building building up to, to kind of get something that you think is interesting, I suppose. I guess that's how I, that's how I would think. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's, um, if that's sort of correct, I mean, if anyone else would agree with me. But um, yeah, and you have... You have this five at the end, so that's it's. I mean, it does it does kind of intimidate me. I have to say, it does seem quite scary. I think everyone is slightly scared of that, but um, it's basically just to um to chat about your work and these two academics. I think it's one internal internal and one external. Um, they spend their time reading your massive thesis, which <laughs> can't be easy. Um, how big then... are we ta- how big are we talking, Beth? Is there a word limit or anything or a minimum? Um, I, I really should know this. Um, I should know this more confidently, but I think it's eighty thousand words. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, that I is pretty big. Eh? Um, <laughs> I might be wrong, so um, I should definitely, definitely have paid more attention to them <laughs> on that. But um, yeah, so you you have a chat with these two at the end, and they just kind of ask you questions about it. And um, in theory, if you've written it all and you've kind of <laughs> you've spent all of the time, you do feel like you know it in and out. Um, so. Um, yeah, it's kind of just a big chat about all you've done over the last three years. Um, and you do have um, sort of assessments along the way. Um, at the moment, I'm writing up um, my annual report for my second year. And so that's that's just um, to check that you're sort of on track and that you're getting on with things, I suppose, because sometimes it can be difficult um, mm-hmm. because you are on your own all the time and you're setting yourself your own goals and um you're kind of in charge of your own progress so these progress reviews are purely just to check that you are still getting on okay and that you don't need a little bit more support I suppose um and so that's what I'm doing at the moment (laughs) and is it is it pass fail at the end of it or are there kind of different grades and stuff yeah there's different grades so um you have 
you can pass straight away but I think that's pretty unusual to not have any sort of corrections there's usually um there's usually minor corrections um which are just um you know they might just be small like tweaks or um they might even just be grammatical stuff so just small things within um within the PhD um and then you do have I think you do have major corrections um quite often too so that's um sort of bigger questions that might need to be answered throughout the um thesis that you might not have covered so well um or you might just need to explain something that you've done a little bit more clearly um and those take a little bit longer to do than the minor corrections um and i think you can you definitely can fail it um but i i have to say luckily i don't have experience of anyone doing that so i'm not sure what the process is <laughs> <laughs> well big fingers crossed i mean again as we we're going to talk about it, it sounds fascinating the work you're doing and um, last question just um in in general about a phd beth what's like what's like been your high point so far what, what what's like a good day in the, in the life of a phd student Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> um, I guess one of the things, like I said earlier, I feel really lucky to be at Loughborough. There's a really good um, sort of community and support system around um, in the in the PhD department and also in the um, academic department. So um, I guess one of the one of the highlights is um, is like if you have a good day and you get a good result, that's always a great a great day. If you find something in your data. Um, that you predicted and it actually worked and you just can't believe that it's actually what you what you said would happen has actually happened and then having this sort of support system around you you can um everyone everyone kind of understands and gets it and I think that's quite nice um yeah I think it's quite a nice um a nice feeling to have other people it's not just you that understands how important it is <laughs> that's nice like, yeah I think I always picture PhD students as again quite a lonely lonely kind of time you, you're working on something you're deep in it I, I didn't really picture this community but yeah that 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 seems a really important side of this how, how are you managing during lockdown is that just kind of zoom chats just like everybody else or how, how does yeah. that work yeah so um to begin with we were doing um lots of lots of zoom sort of quizzes and things like everybody <laughs> else was um they have sort of um they have stopped um so much now but I think yeah. um you kind of you've got into a rhythm now I think of checking up on people which is nice I think I feel like everyone's a little bit more um, involved and we've also got um, a writing workshop at the um, MEC which is kind of um, like a group where we all come together and talk about any like problems we've been having with our writing and or any successes we've had with our writing over a week so it's a weekly workshop um, and it's just an hour where we all kind of um, chat about um, there's normally a theme um, which comes from some blog post or, or something and um, we chat about chat about that and kind of just discuss how we're getting on and in the pandemic it's um, moved on to zoom and it's quite um, it's quite a broad how you're getting on so it's not just how's your writing doing it's kind of, yeah, of how do you how are you feeling about sort of life in general <laughs> so it's been quite nice to have that and that's like a weekly sort of look in which is is nice that's superb. And um, again, feel free not, not to answer this, Beth, but is there anything that you feel that um, anyone considering a PhD should really consider or, or think about or any tips or advice or anything that, that spring to mind knowing what you know now? Um, I suppose my my biggest thing was I was quite um, I was quite concerned when I started the PhD. I think I was I didn't have much confidence in um, whether I'd be able to do a PhD. Like I said, I had a maths degree, so that's not particularly mm um sort of I didn't have any sort of university writing skills um so I think I was a little bit worried that it would be out of my depth um 
And I think as long as you've got that sort of interest in what you're doing and um, the commitment to kind of keep trying and working hard, um, everyone says that PhDs are difficult. And I mean, they are difficult, but um, they can also be a lot of fun as long as you sort of are prepared to work hard, um, work hard for sometimes. I mean, sometimes you don't have to, you know, some days are, are easier than others. So <laughs> there's quite a few, a few days where you can sort of, um, you might think that you've done, you've done enough for the day. I think just being kind to yourself as well like that, I think, um, I know at the beginning of a PhD, you suddenly sort of find all this literature and you're like, oh my goodness, there's so much to read. <laughs> yes. um, but I think that's one of the, one of the things is you've got to, you've got to learn to pace yourself. Um, and I think if you can, if you can do all of those things and um, I think if you're open to learning, then a PhD is something that you can achieve. I think you don't need to worry about not being sort of clever enough or, or whatever. I think as long as you've got that commitment and um, patience for yourself, um, you'll be fine. Well, that's brilliant advice. And I said final question, but I've just, just thought of one more. And when you were talking about reading and getting better at reading all, all the, the literature. Now, I, I've only had a kind of very small experience of this when I was researching, particularly for my first book. Um, it was the first time I'd really engaged with reading educational research. And I'll, I'll tell you what, Beth, some of it was painful. It was so, so not badly written in the sense that um, like there was mistakes or anything, but to like the untrained researcher reading eye if that makes sense i was reading it thinking what the hell is it so dry and i was having to go back over sentences after sentences trying to figure out what the hell's going on and then it would be a real breath of fresh air whenever i came across a research paper that was written in a slightly more accessible style or there was just something about it that just made it easier to digest and um, do do you do you find this? Do you, do you still find now, even though you're quite a long way in, that some research is just quite inaccessible? And have you got have you managed to pin down what it is that makes a piece of research for for someone like you reading it just just a bit more engaging and a bit more easy to take in? Are there any kind of key key things or key features? Um, yeah, definitely. I I mean, um, what you were saying about finding some that are, are difficult to read, I definitely still get that now, and I think um, <laughs> it's something that you do. You do become more aware of. I think the more papers you read, you kind of think, "Oh, this one is really is really tough." Um, and I think that was something I do remember when I first started the masters. I had to do um, a philosophy um, module on research methods, and that had some really tough papers in. That I had <laughs> I to bet. read. I had to read some really sort of um, some really intense stuff that I hadn't looked at since A level, um, and definitely hadn't read sort of research level stuff on. Um, and I did find that really difficult. And um, again, with um, cognition stuff. So um, I'm in the sort of centre of mathematical cognition. Um, and that's something that I've never, you know, I didn't even study that at A level. So mm. reading some of that stuff, um, I did find it a little bit tough. But I think one of the things there is there's just so many words that you don't know. I think that's one of the <laughs> most difficult things. And I think <laughs> yeah. um, if you if you I mean, it can be quite scary doing it, but if you highlight all those words that you're not sure what they mean um, and you try and really get to grips with what those words mean, I think slowly and slowly it does get easier. Like reading those mass cognition papers now, um, I'm more um, aware of what some of those words mean. So I'm not sort of stumbling every sort of two two words over wondering, <laughs> wondering what, it, what it's talking about. So, um, yeah, I guess I think that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, some... some um, reading styles are more difficult than others I think and um, from the writing workshop we've sort of covered quite a lot of 
ways of um, making our writing and our research like easier for people to read. And I think one of the one of the biggest things for me has been um, starting to write in um, active voice rather than passive voice. Um, and it's quite um, typical of research papers to write in this passive voice as if, um, you know, this has been done by some sort of person out there mm. and not not by the person who's writing it. And I think um, actually using those we or using I and using those um, pronouns, they can be really helpful um, in trying to understand what's going on. <laughs> That's really interesting. That's fascinating. Oh, thanks for that, Beth. That's superb. That. Well, let, let's talk specifically then about your your area of research that you want to talk about today. Yeah? What, what what are we going for? Um. Well, I just thought I would um talk about the the research, like the the field of my PhD, which is um uh, maths textbooks. So, um, like I said, I've, I'm partnered with um, Oxford University Press, so I'm in a good position um, to sort of research maths textbooks, which has been really cool. Um, this this will be fascinating. This because again, te- we've done over a hundred of these episodes, and textbooks they're obviously they're always in the background of, of of conversations. If I speak to a teacher, often it'll come up when we talk about planning lessons and finding questions and so on. And I've spoken to one teacher, Johnny Griffiths, who's been actively involved as a textbook writer, but we've never had a chance to to dive deep on this and, and in particular think about yeah textbook design what makes good textbooks and not so yeah this is this is right up my street Beth so um what what attracted you to it initially was it just because this was the opening this was the kind of this was the the PhD on offer or did you did you have a bit of an interest in textbook design beforehand um I think so this was my studentship was um sort of proposed like for me so um Mm. sometimes you can um you know write a proposal for a PhD and then it gets accepted or um the way I did it where there's a proposal already written and then you apply to to do that research so that's what I did and um like I said because it was with Oxford University Press I think I was um quite intrigued by that that's a little bit different for a PhD to have this collaborator Mm. um and I think I've always um I haven't always been the brightest spark at maths I think um (laughs) I think that's probably what attracted me to to down the maths education route um, at, uh, anyway. Um, so I, d- I didn't particularly enjoy it at GCSE and it was only taking it A level because um, I was relatively good at it was the only reason I really took it at A level. And then I sort of have grown to like it a lot more throughout <laughs> throughout um, those years. But I think one thing that um, when I saw this PhD on textbooks, I thought um, thinking back to my own sort of education with um, maths, I thought actually... I don't really remember using a textbook for any reason other than questions or exercises. Yes. Yes. So um yeah, I guess I just I really wanted to sort of see see what we could do with textbooks, I suppose. That's fascinating. Well, would you just talk to me generally then about some of the things you've been looking into and, and some of the things you've found out? And I'll just interrupt at annoying points along the way, Beth. So yeah, talk us through some of the things you've you've discovered. Okay. Um so um I've started off um and obviously a textbook is a big a big thing so um i was trying to um sort of find find something that i wanted to um look at within that and um mm. i began by looking at um mathematical reading too so that was sort of another part of the phd um proposal so sort of looking at how how students read mathematical text um and obviously there is mathematical text in math textbooks um, but I think generally, um, 
sort of a general opinion is that um, the text in a math textbook isn't particularly used. Um, I don't know if that sort of um, aligns with your experience, Craig. Um, yeah, do you, when you mean mathematical reading, mathematical text, what, what, what are we talking about here? Like, n- as in not like a worked example and, and not questions, the, the kind of kind of introductory stuff and, and stuff around the side. Is, is that the kind of thing you're thinking about? Yeah, so um, from from my time in um, publishing, I think they call it the exposition. So it's that expository ah, nice. text at the beginning um, that kind of explains a little bit to do with what you're going to talk um, learn yes. about in the topic, um, in the unit. And um, it's that short. It's normally not very long. It's probably like a couple of paragraphs, um, maybe a little bit longer. And um, it just has a bit of information um, about the following topic. I will go so far as to say in 16 years of teaching, I've never used that once. Yeah, you're up. You're absolutely right. And again, that's that's my fault. I've, I've not. Yeah, I, ju- I just use the textbook exactly as you said at the start for, for, for questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And see, I find that so interesting as well, because um, if you look at the sort of research that has been done on maths textbooks, it has been um, there has been more research um, in recent years. But the majority of the research does seem to be on um either on like um, comparisons between countries textbooks Mm. but um, also there's a lot of research on how teachers use um, maths textbooks um, more so than how students use maths textbooks Um, so that was something else that I sort of I found very interesting and kind of confusing as well because I thought um, you know um, like you said I didn't imagine that a teacher used a textbook as much as um I mean, obviously, you use those exercises, maybe, and the worked examples, yes. maybe. But um, the the text is, I don't think, I don't think you're alone in that. Phew. Um, okay, that's good. That's good news. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess um, the that explanatory text at the beginning, um, that was kind of something that I was really interested in um, looking at further. Um, like I said, the research on students' use of textbooks is pretty limited. And um, the the research that has been done on um, students reading, um, there is um, on students reading mathematics in particular, um, there is some research on it. But I think the research that has been done at um, university level um, does seem to suggest that students aren't particularly proficient at reading mathematics, even at university level. Wow. Um, yeah, which I, th- I think it is interesting. And I think I- it's sorry. Sorry, Beth. No, when you say proficient, is that as in like they read the text and they can't understand it or they simply just don't don't engage with 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 the reading? Yeah, so I think it's reading, reading the text and not. um, Yeah, kind of like when we try and read those difficult research. (laughs) (laughs) Like you you can read it, but you're not getting everything out of it that you could be getting out of it. And um, it's, you know, it's not as easy as reading a paragraph from your English textbook. That's interesting. I've got it. Got it. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for interrupting. That's okay. Um, I I don't think I'm I'm sort of I'm coming in on my topic from like multiple angles, but um, <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating. No, keep going. Um, yeah, I think just that that all of these different things to do with reading mathematics and math textbooks, and you've got this portion of text at the beginning of your um of your textbook that people don't seemingly use. Um, I think um. Um, Aaron Weinberg um, and his colleagues did some research um, in America and they found that um, undergraduate students reported to not really use their um, expository text in their textbook at all, um, which is obviously quite interesting. Um, And looking, um, 
you know looking in general from my like personal experience um and as you um said craig i i didn't think it was particularly used at all either mm. so um i started off with my um with my masters and i started off just looking to see how um how students used a maths textbook i was just i just wanted to get like a general feeling for how it was used so um i started off with um going to undergraduate students and i i had an eye tracking study and i just had several pages of a maths textbook um and i just asked the students to read this textbook um from from the computer screen so just these sort of this extract of a textbook yeah um and i gave them some questions afterwards just to give them something to um some motivation to read so that they have something yes. to read for and uh and just wanted to see from the um eye tracking data where they tended to read so which bits of the textbook they did read and i also from that data you can also kind of tell the depth of their processing so how much um how much effort almost that they go into mm. to read different parts of the um, text so um that was kind of where i started in my masters um and because i had um this um collaboration with oup i also um before i did this i also looked at um I went in and spoke to three authors of the textbook that I used, um, which was really cool. Um, and it was, that was a great sort of um, great opportunity to kind of see what the authors um, had sort of thought about when they yes. were when they were creating the textbook. Um, and that was quite a big learning curve for me in many ways, um, because I think in in my mind, I don't know. I don't know if you have a sort of better insight than me, but I just assumed that the author was the one that kind of wrote all of that and kind of decided what should be written. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, but going into OUP, I realised, um, hopefully I'm not giving away any secrets here. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there's a, there's a team of people behind it. And I guess I, I kind of knew that in the back of my mind, but I assumed I thought an editor was just someone that read what the author yeah. and said, yeah, that's great, or, you know, you need to change, like, the wording. But, no, this the the team of editors and the publishers, they're the ones that kind of propose the style, the layout, and everything. And they're the ones that tell the authors exactly, they brief the authors on exactly what they want sort of to be included. Um, and then there's this really quite rigorous process back and forth between the editors and the authors to, you know, get it right. Um, so as much as the authors... Um, are really in charge of creating that content and they write it and it's them that have um, you know writing it in their own words it's mm. also um, got a lot of input from the editors and from the publishers um, so it's not just a single sort of person writing the whole textbook. Jeez um, that is interesting. Yeah and I, I mean I did find that really interesting um, especially because um, I mentioned briefly Aaron Weinberg um um, and he he has this um, well he him and his colleagues um, adapted reader oriented theory. Um, so reader oriented theory is basically that there that we have these these three readers. So um, Weinberg adapted this for um, for maths textbooks so that there's these three readers of maths textbooks. Um, so I'll I'll go through those. I don't know. Um, tell yeah. me if you want me to explain <laughs> explain any of them in more detail. As soon as as soon as I get to something I don't understand, I'll stop you, Beth. I promise. Okay. <laughs> so um, we've got the, um, the 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 kind of most obvious one is the empirical reader. So the empirical reader is the reader who actually reads the textbook. So um, when I think of the empirical reader, I think of the student who's sitting there 
reading the textbook so in my okay. eye tracking study that's the student that's reading the textbook um yep. on the on the screen and then we have the intended reader um and this one isn't quite as a as like a physical person as the the one that um the student so this is the reader within the author's mind so this is yes that reader that i imagine the author had in mind when they were writing um yes. and which i came to realize actually um is like an amalgamation of the editor's um sort of reader that they have in mind and the yes. publisher as well so it's not as quite i think i i came to realize that it wasn't as straightforward as just this one author had this reader in their mind and that's who was being the text was being written for it's kind of all of these different people's experiences of who they have met along the way and who they imagine will be reading the textbook that's who the intended author is that's interesting yep got it and then the third one is the implied reader which is one that um is a little bit more complicated i don't know if it's just because i'm not very good at explaining it Um, (laughs) but it's basically the the reader that's constructed by the text itself so um one of the ways i think to to um to to pin this reader down is by thinking of it's how um an expert might read the read the textbook so it's the the assumptions that an author might have put in there um is what makes it different from an intended reader so it's the assumptions an author has about the reader and you know they they don't realize they've written that in there but it's something that comes across from the text that they might not be aware of um so it's all of those things um that the text kind of if you were if you were an expert you how you would if you were to get everything from the text that's the implied ah. reader so know. almost kind of like best case scenario if if you you get everything yeah it's supposed yeah. to be there oh, okay yeah. right okay so, so these are the, the text is giving you <laughs> got it got it hey i find that implied reader is a fascinating one right I, the, the fact that it's sorry intended reader sorry the fact that yeah as soon as you kind of bring the committee into play you you've got so many different experiences and so many different intentions in there and it's it's one of those classic things i only know this from my limited experience of writing books and that that only often involves one editor but sometimes you end up with the kind of the worst of both worlds sometimes because you intend one thing the the editor intends something else and it ends up being a bit of a compromise that that either tries to intend too much or, or not enough, if that if that makes sense, and that must be even more so in terms of uh, in terms of textbook writing with with more people involved. I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, it's not only w- it's when you start looking at textbooks in the detail that I've had to look at them that you <laughs> you, you kind of you do notice that um, there is slight differences. You can see when an author might be different, and you do you kind of do notice there's different. You know, they use different. Um, different things in different ways and it is it is interesting and um yeah I guess you know one of the benefits of my collaboration was like realizing that that intended reader isn't just that isn't just one person inside an author's mind it might be um quite a few different people's sort of versions of the intended reader that actually come together that's very interesting so so what happens what did what did you do with these kind of once you've got this model of these three different types of reader where did that take you well, so I, I um, interviewed three of these authors to mm. um, see if I could sort of understand who the intended reader was. So that was my um, idea to kind of see how they expected the students to read the textbook and what they were what they were thinking um, would happen when they're reading the textbook. And um, are these are these A level textbooks from OUP, Beth, or is this still is this undergrad still? Yeah, sorry, I focused on um, I focused on A level textbooks. Um, I probably should have said that earlier. Um, I, I focused on A-level textbooks purely because 
um that was something that um interested me at the time and also um looking into it actually I think it's quite an important stage of maths education Mm. I think it's one that um obviously it's not as um you know there's not as many students doing it um as other as when it's compulsory because obviously it's not compulsory um in the UK to do um a level Mm. maths but um I think it's that really important stage it's kind of that bridging stage between um the GCSE use of a textbook where from my experience it was definitely just using a textbook for questions yes um um, and then that stage at university where you're expected to read all this maths and you're meant to be this independent learner um who like goes to the library and gets our maths books and reads them and tries to understand them um and it's that kind of independent stage where you're you're having to look at the textbook sometimes because you don't understand something you need to um like reread it if the if the teacher's not there to help you um and it kind of it's there so I think it is there for your questions when you're um, a university student but I think um it might not be but I think maybe it should be something a little bit more so it should be guiding you into becoming that independent learner so yes. it should be like setting you on that path to um becoming that independent learner so that's um, really that's very interesting yeah I like I like that and it, again it always fascinates me as well and um, we've spoke about this on the podcast before the fact that uh, one of my fa- many failings as a teacher is that I te- I treat even my year 12s different to my year 11s even though so like a year year 12 class in September I suddenly assume that I've I've now inherited this bunch of mature independent learners whereas 6 weeks ago they were they were year 11s for whom I was really kind of guiding them down the path and so on it's 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 a really tricky time that, that those those a level years aren't they those kind of transitioning from very much teacher led to the independent students that they they're going to need to be two years time how how you bridge that gap and as you say the tech i've never considered this before beth but yeah the, the textbook could play a really important role in that yeah and i think um i think obviously i don't have um i don't have the teaching experience behind it but i can i can kind of recollect my own experiences from um a level and i think it is something that um I think I do remember my textbook I mean obviously it was near it was closer ago than my GCSE but I do remember (laughs) the textbook from A level whereas I can't really remember using that textbook every day when I was at you know doing GCSE um and I don't yeah so I think just using like trying to encourage students to become independent learners um at A level is a little bit more important but I think something that um perhaps going off topic a little bit here but I think one of the one of the difficulties, especially in the UK with um, textbooks, is they've got quite um, quite um, sort of a difficult um, deal. I think they're quite, teachers tend to not use textbooks so much. I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, Craig, but I feel no, like you're right. it's a bit, there's almost this sort of, um, it's also some sort of um, like sort of shame associated with using mm. a textbook as if um, using a textbook is somehow um, not very good because um you you know you should be looking at loads of different places for loads of different resources um is that is that kind of yeah i'll tell you i'll tell you what probably for seven eight years ago it would have been one of the worst crimes you could have committed would have been to to whip out a textbook particularly if you're teaching year seven through to year 11 um yeah you would very rarely see a textbook around because as you exactly as you say it was almost seen as a lack of imagination and effort on the part of the teacher um a level i think they've they've all they've always been around um and there seems to be a bit of a resurgence now in in textbooks for younger students 
purely because we're, again, it's no surprise when you look at the kind of PISA rankings and stuff, you see the top rated countries. And then one of the things they've got in common is they seem to have textbooks and so on. So that seems to be filtering through that actually textbooks can be a good thing. But you're absolutely right. There's still can be seen by and it's often by kind of senior leaders and stuff as, as quite a negative thing if, if teachers are teaching from textbooks certainly certainly for younger classes yeah I'd, I'd completely agree with that Beth. yeah and um I think I, I went to a, a conference my first sort of international conference last year and it was the international conference of maths textbooks oh, <laughs> which nice. was brilliant I had no idea it existed <laughs> but it was perfect <laughs> it was perfect for me to kind of um to like survey the field and kind of get an idea of what research was out there and one of the biggest things was just noticing how different countries have such different attitudes towards textbooks it's really really interesting and um I know that UK seems to have this kind of um, idea that using a textbook means that you're somehow not as competent as a teacher. Mm, yes. And um, I think one of the one of the um, one of the aims of um, of the textbook research in this country should be to kind of um, make it so that textbooks are are good enough to you, for you to feel like you could admit that you're using one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that's good. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry, off topic a bit, but um, yeah, no, it's, that... fa- it's fascinating. <laughs> it, no, but but you're you're absolutely right. Like, but, and I'll tell you when this was at its most damaging was if you were a, a new teacher coming in like to the profession, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, and you 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 joined the teaching profession at the time when textbooks were seen in this negative light. It was a bit of a disaster for you because you were having to try and think how to order these topics, what good examples to choose, what good exercises. And you were just kind of searching on the internet for things, just kind of clutching at straws. Whereas a textbook or a good textbook has been thought out, particularly if it's in its kind of second and third edition and so on. Its mistakes have been corrected. The sequence of examples has been really carefully thought through. If, as you say, if it's got mathematical test text at the start, perhaps you've got a way into the topic there. It's It could be one of the teacher's most valuable resources and particularly for a less experienced teacher. So yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It has been seen as a sign of, uh, of a lack of confidence on the teacher's part. And that's, it's a, it's a real shame. Yeah, I don't quite know where that's come from in this country well I think I think one of the difficulties in this country is that we have um different publishers creating the different textbooks Mm, so it stops being entirely about the education and it starts being a little bit about um like the competition in the market and creating that better textbook and um I really think that's kind of a big problem is that um where you know then the textbook isn't just an educational tool it's like um it's something that needs it's you're not just um you're not just a teacher who's you know needs a good text you're also a customer for, yes. for these um, publishers so I think that's probably one of the the biggest problems and I think um it's it's something that um now that I'm working with OUP and um kind of trying to um make all these kind of researchy changes to um different parts of the the design process um some things that one of the difficulties is that sometimes reading uh, learning is difficult so it might not be like the the best way of doing something it might not seem the best way of doing mm. something because it's hard to do and um i think that's one of the difficulties with the fact that the textbook um is going to um people that are paying for it is that if you're you know if something seems difficult you'd rather have the textbook where it seems easier to do it when actually yes. that might not necessarily be the best thing for you know you're learning so i think it is it's quite a difficult um situation with having you know competing textbooks i think that is one of the issues to come from it 
I'll tell you what, Beth, that's, that's such an interesting and important point that because you, you often, again, having having been pitched to by many education publishers as, as a teacher over the years, they, they, they do push the kind of bright, shiny aspects of the textbook. Or the, look, ours is bright and colorful. It comes with a CD where you can access these videos and so on and so forth. But yeah, we, we know from research, particularly into uh, Bjork's desirable difficulties, that, that learning takes place over time. And sometimes the things that lead to a short-term dip in performance lead to a long-term gain in learning and kids don't like that you know nobody likes that nobody likes to feel you're going slower and you're finding things harder but we know that in the long run it it may be better so that's a really interesting i've never thought to frame that in the way of um kind of competition within textbooks well when you when you're at this conference which sounds absolutely brilliant i'd I'd absolutely (laughs) love to come to this one and was it your sense that the UK is fairly unique in terms of comp- competition between publishers for textbooks. Did, did most? I know there's the classic thing like um, Shanghai and stuff. They have a, like a national textbook and so on. Was that that was? Were more countries like that where there was kind of fewer choice um, of textbooks compared to the UK? Um, so I think I, I mean several several different countries like they are they are quite similar to us, um, mm. and I think. Oh, I'm trying to remember now. It was in 2019, so I have to, I have to try and think <laughs> back. But I, I'm pretty sure um, there was, you know, a, a lot of countries that were in a similar position to us. I do remember that I think it was. Oh no, I'm going to get it wrong now. I think it was Brazil, but I might be, I might be wrong on that. Um, but they have like um, a textbook that's um, decided by the government, and um, as a teacher, you get. Um, you get kind of marked on how much you use that textbook and you get kind of um, if you don't use that textbook and you use a different one, then I think you, you know, you can face like serious consequences. So wow. I think there is kind of this like weird um, kind of big spectrum of how textbooks yes. are used across the, um, across the globe. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's quite a, a, a big difference. And I think one of the the, the troubles with you know textbook research is there's so much you could study because if you wanted to do an international study on on that then that's pretty pretty fascinating um but yeah i think the U- the uk isn't alone in how it does things um obviously like you said there is um some countries that do have one textbook enforced and um that's kind of it's a good thing sometimes and sometimes it might not be a good thing depending sure. on how good the textbook is um but yeah we we definitely have um have sort of this this it's not a unique model anyway. <laughs> That's interesting. Anyway, I've, I've derailed you now. So we'll, we'll go back. We're in these author interviews. So what's coming, what's coming out of that when you're, when you're interviewing? What, what kind of questions are you asking them and what, what's coming back? So I did it quite, um, quite systematically. So I literally just went through all of the different things in the A-level textbook, all of the different mm. design, um, design sort of um, text boxes and um, the worked examples and the exercises mm. um, there's this kind of um, three part structure usually in our textbooks um, at the moment so they have this exposition which is like the yeah. the explanatory text with different um, maybe different questions or like little text boxes or kind of hints little things to make it a little bit more interesting yeah. um, and then we have the worked examples so that's the second part of the three things and then the third thing is the exercises yes. so that tends to be the kind of three-part split and those were the things I focused on really and then I kind of asked about the specific um, features within the those three parts so like I said the text boxes in the explanatory text but then also um, in worked examples you usually have some sort of like question and then an answer mm. with little um 
kind of explanatory steps between the different steps yes. of the work example. Um, that seems to be pretty common now. So um, it was kind of asking um, how the authors expected the students to use all of these different features and whether they would use them as well. Um, you know, how they how how often they thought they would use them. Um, and um, that was really interesting, especially um, from look, sort of with this focus on the um, the text side of things, um, because the authors, even though they're writing this sort of this big textual um, part of the textbook, they were saying, yeah, we don't really think the students would read that. And that was kind of that was really interesting. I thought, <laughs> you know, like um, they're, they're writing this stuff and everyone, everyone, you know, thinks that it should be there, but no one thinks that anyone uses it. <laughs> and then when you speak to, you know, you speak to people and you've got this um, result from um, America when they're saying that they don't read the explanatory text and you think, well, if no one's no one reads it or thinks it should be there it is um, it does make you kind of, it made me, it interested me anyway. It made me think. Yes. Um, so that was kind of one of the biggest things that came out of that. And they predicted that the worked examples would be, you know, really popular amongst the students, um, which I think is pretty, um, is a pretty common view as well. Um, so um, that was, that was the interview, interview study. And after, after that, I, I did the um, eye tracking study and mm. I looked at that data to see, where the students did actually look the most and kind of um, read in the most depth when when they were shown that textbook on the screen, um, and from that I I basically I found that they did they did read the text they they did spend time on the text I think it was one of the most read elements of the textbook but um, they didn't actually they didn't um, engage with it as deeply as other parts of the text or uh, other okay. parts of the textbook so. Um, the, I mean, the study itself, I mean, if I was to do it again, I'd probably do it a little bit differently. <laughs> but because, um, I mean, it's very kind of contrived to just get them to read a textbook. Yes. I don't think anyone ever just kind of sits down and reads their textbook from sort of, you know, the start of a chapter to the end of the mm. chapter. But I mean, it, it was interesting in the sense that um, with the um, with the key points, um, those were I think those were read the most and um, also um, sort of read in the most depth so they gave the most attention to those which um they're sorry they're the most deeply processed so i think that's quite interesting because i think and what are they what are the key points beth is that that like, oh, that's kind like, of summary, sorry, like key information yeah ah, so, right okay you know but, within within the text where like key key parts of the information is being pulled out and highlighted in like, yes. a specific way Got it. So the so the kids were really into that, spent spending time on that and reading that in depth. I yeah, see. exactly. Um, whereas the the actual big blocks of text, they were still reading them, but they weren't um, processing them as deeply. Basically, I see. I see. And what what, what about the worked examples and, and and exercises? Yeah. So the worked examples. Um, this was interesting, and I think I think it kind of just shows the study um you know the study design but the the worked examples they weren't really read um but when they were read they were like processed in a lot of depth so ah. i think that kind of shows that um you know the study isn't well, you know you didn't have a pen and paper in front of you and i think if you were going to go through a worked example that was probably um probably how you're going to kind of going to yes. do it and um but it showed that the ones that did kind of spend a lot of spend time reading it did actually engage with it which I thought was quite interesting. That is interesting. That is interesting. So um, have you done anything since, Beth, on this? Yeah, so um, I kind of followed this up um, in 
many different directions, which um, I need to bring together at some point. <laughs> um, but um, I, I um, did some interview studies with, because so all of this was with just university students, because um, mm. obviously that's kind of like an easy way of doing it at a university yes. is, is getting to the university uh, undergrad students. So um, I went into a school and I, I just interviewed, well, I went into several schools and just interviewed A-level students to see how do they actually use it. And I thought, I've got that that data from the eye tracking kind mm. of which sort of says how they use it but um how do they report to use it themselves yes. how do they say they actually use it in practice um and that was really interesting because um then I got um I, I I did a thematic analysis on these interviews so I did this kind of looking through trying to see if there was themes between how I think it was 20 24 students that I interviewed mm. Um, and I was just asking them how they used all of these different elements and trying to draw together themes between all of the different students to try and understand if there was kind of um, these key ways in which they were using their textbook um, and to see just to try and understand how textbooks were being used. Um, and the interesting thing from that was that they were reporting to use their expository text and they were kind of autonomous learners or they were trying, you know, if they, when they use their textbook, they were trying to be independent learners. So they were trying to um, kind of, they were using that textbook to help them in the way that I think it could help them, you know, move from that um, GCSE student to that university student that we were mm. talking about earlier. Um, so that was really, really interesting because they were saying that they did use the, um, the text, um, especially when, their teachers um, were absent um, and yes. they weren't there and they needed help on something or, you know, they got stuck on something, they would often go back to read the text. And so that text actually it did have a purpose. And, you know, even even though um, quite a few people don't, don't think that they are, it is actually used, um, even if it's just the minority of students, there is still um, a group of students that use that text and um, do learn from it and try and get extra help from that text rather than going online and searching on the internet they'll go to their text that's that's interesting because that's what i was going to ask my, my instinct would be that if um if students were stuck perhaps they would they would go online either to youtube or, or wherever it would be but that that's interesting that students still would you go so far as to say that their kind of first port of call is is the textbook um, yeah, so this was quite difficult to kind of um, to <laughs> to get from the students, I think. But <laughs> one of the one of the um, things that I found was that although students do like looking at um, all of the different, um, there's lots of people putting out videos of different of A level maths, isn't there? There's lots of yes. videos on YouTube that they can look at. But um, I was, I mean, I was surprised that even any student said that they were going to their textbook first, to be mm, honest. And there was, yes. there was um, a lot of students that did say they went there first, but there was also um, students that even if they did look at a video, they would also look at their text. So it was kind of um, the textbook. So they, they were using that textbook, which, um, yeah, it did surprise me, to be honest. <laughs> it did. And and when you say using it, they, they are using this, if we talk about those three parts, the, the kind of exploratory text, the worked examples and, and the activities, uh, the exercises. My, my instinct would be the bit they're using most is going to be the worked examples. But are you saying that they were actually using the bit before that, the, the exposition uh, quite a bit as well? Yeah, so they weren't using the text the most. I think if I said that, mm. that would be um, that would be wrong. So they weren't using it the most. They were using it, but they mm. definitely, you're right in thinking the worked examples, 
they seem to be you know everyone loved the worked examples <laughs> um <laughs> and i think one of the if i if i could spend longer on my phd i would look into worked examples more because um a lot of it came up i think the majority i think even i could probably say every single student said that they used the worked examples when they were stuck um in so much as they used it almost like they were um I think it's called templating where they literally just look at the question they're stuck on look at the previous worked example and just basically change the numbers to make it work yes. for that question that they're yes. stuck on um and i think that's um really interesting and i think that's a really interesting um thought when you think about the fact that it's very popular amongst students and it makes you think actually is it popular because it's just an easy way of um yes. getting through a question that you think is really difficult um that's interesting and I think there probably should be a little bit more um I mean there is a lot of work on work um on worked examples but I think maybe we need to think about worked examples um in more detail when we're writing textbooks as well to think about how to set students up so that they can use those worked examples um to help them but not just as like a templating um tool so that they can get the answer and still not understand (laughs) That's very interesting. I've never heard of it called that before. I like that templating. That's that's very good. And um, where have, have you gone anywhere else with this, Beth? Or or what, what's coming next for you in terms of uh, looking at textbooks? Um. So after the interview study, I thought I would. Um. Um. I well, I, I'm I'm looking at I'm using comparative judgment. I don't know um, if you've if you've come across comparative. Oh judgment. yeah, big big fun. Yeah, we've had uh, Daisy Christodoulou on the show talking uh, talking about this. She's, yeah, so we, we we like a bit of this is this is where instead of um, rank ordering, you just comparing kind of two things at once, just saying one's bigger or better than the other. Is is that right? And it kind of comes out with it with an order at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. So um, you just you compare to. Um, two objects and um, I think it was Thurston that said um, that um, yeah by comparing these two objects it's easier to compare those and then put them into this rank using lots of algorithms yes, <laughs> is yes. better than trying to compare them all at once. Yeah it's yeah. very clever very clever very powerful so how, how have you used that? So I, I took these um, focusing on the expositions I took 16 expositions um, and I kind of um, put them put them into um, no more marking. So that's I think I think Daisy is. Um, that's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> one of the directors there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, Ian Jones um, at Loughborough is also um, sort of um, heavily involved. So he's kind of been my been my advisor on a lot of that sort of, <laughs> sort of stuff. So um, I I had um, I had these sixteen explanations in in this um, no more marking comparative judgment. Um, program and um, I gave it to um, A-level students, A-level teachers and undergraduates and um, I said to each of the three groups I said just choose the better explanation because I really wanted to identify what it was that made a good explanation Um, but I also wanted to see using that comparative judgment software whether there was this like um, underlying agreement between these three different groups whether they all agreed Mm. on what a good explanation was. Um, so whether the all A level students thought the good um, one explanation one was yes. better than the other, but also whether A level students and A level teachers and undergraduates whether they all thought that actually that was a good explanation or it wasn't. That's interesting. So that was that was kind of um, what I wanted to do with the um, ex, ex, expository text, and um, yeah, I came out with um, some interesting results. So um, the the 
the A-level students, they seem to agree with each other the most. So I had the a good reliability with them. It showed that they um, agreed what a good explanation was um, sort of in the most, um, the most strongly. Um, and the A-level teachers and undergraduates, they did have like a relatively, um, they did agree with each other, um, like sort of relatively strongly, but it wasn't quite as strong as those A-level students. Okay. Um, but even so, looking at how all of those three groups um, agreed with each other, it did seem that they, um, yeah, they did seem to agree with each other. That there was this kind of standard um, kind of good explanation, which was really interesting. That is. Can you go as far as to say what, what the kind of key features of that good explanation were? Oh, well, see, this was a difficult bit. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to identify what the features yes. were. I was hoping that maybe it was the one with the most text boxes or the yeah, one yeah. with like the most diagrams or, you know, something really obvious to spot. Yes. So I, I kind of did this, um, I can't remember, what, what did I call it? This um, manifest features, like the ones that are oh, obvious. Nice. I thought I'd pick them all out and and then it would give me a great result. And it didn't. I, I oh. counted them all and there was, no, there, was no, there was nothing that was significantly correlating with the um with this ranking that I'd got from the comparative judgment so um I kind of had to kind of use all these different I kind of tried to find different ways I could um analyze the the explanations um and I did get a a few so these were all exploratory results now so um I was just trying to explore different ways of analyzing Mm. the text and one of the things um I don't know if you've heard of the split attention principle oh yes I have yes yeah. This is from from cognitive load theory, right? Where yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So you you can explain it far better than me, Beth. Oh, <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the split attention principle is that um, basically we want to integrate our information so that um, we process it, all of the information in front of us at the same time. Because if it's separated, then um, it's diff- more difficult for us to process. Is that? Is that a good summary? That sounds good. Yeah, and I always think of it in terms of um, yeah, images and text, particularly if if they're separated from each other. Yeah, this kind of switching between the two modes of information has this kind of cognitive cost. Yeah, no, that 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 sounds that's that's my understanding anyway. Beth. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's perfect. And I think that was one of the things I looked at. So I looked at the diagrams, um, the explanations. Like I said, there was only sixteen, and out of those, there was not very many that had diagrams and there wasn't very many that had like didn't have diagrams yeah. so I looked at the ones that did have diagrams and there was I think it was three that might have had diagrams that were in the margin of the the text mm. and there was I think I think there was six maybe four or five um that had them in the main body of the text so ah. I, I kind of just wanted to look at those and I thought I'd have a have a look and see whether there was a difference um in where they were ranked as to where the diagram was placed in the text um just because I'd read about the split attention principle I thought it'd be interesting and I did actually find that um the 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 explanations tended to be ranked higher if the if the diagram was within the main body of the explanation not in the margin so that was quite um quite quite nice that's (laughs) very nice quite quite a um yeah a good finding so that was um good and then something else that um, I found as well was just that um, I mentioned sort of ages ago now about um, using active and passive voice in mm, writing. Yes. And one of the things I found was that passive voice, um, the explanations that use a lot of passive voice tended to be ranked lower than ones that use uh... active voice. So that was quite um, quite a nice result as well, because I'd read a lot about um, using, you know, active and passive voice in just academic writing. 
So it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting result, that one, to come out of my research too. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So were they the kind of big two things that you've picked out so far, the the kind of avoiding split attention and, and the, the active and passive voice? Um, yeah, I guess to, to go along with the passive voice, I also found that if there was more imperatives used then they were ranked lower, um, which I guess I kind of saw it as um, that the reader was being obscured. So if the if there was, you know, if there was no, um, if it wasn't obvious who the, who the sorry, the writer, who, the, who that was, if there was no obvious person there, I think that was, um, that always made the text sort of lower um, in the ranking. That's really interesting. And and what, what what are you doing with this now, Beth? Does that feed then to, to OUP in terms of how, trying to improve their textbooks? Is that the kind of practical thing you're working on now as a result of this? Um, so as a result of the, this um, study, I'm doing, I'm going to run another comparative judgment study kind of, um, I, well, actually, I'm not sure if I should say just in case anyone oh. does it that I'm talking to, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure I can say it in uh, in, in, in vague terms. But just changing one of the diagrams uh, and one of the explanations um, so that it um, kind of it changes everything that I I think makes it a better explanation and testing nice. that to see whether it does um, it does improve perceptions of that explanation. So that's um, the the sort of big thing that I'm doing next. I'd say. Um, yeah. this is fast fascinating this we're, we're, we're unfortunately we are we're running out of time here but I have so much more to ask you about textbooks let me just ask you just one more thing about this um, did you do the um, comparative judgment exercise yourself with, with these 16 or, or have or even if you didn't looking at these 16 did you agree what, what the clearest one was with, with the students yeah surprisingly um, looking at the ranking it does um you know you read them and you think actually yeah I can see that one you know I would rank that one better than mm. that one but it's really quite hard to pinpoint what it is that makes yes. it a better or a worse explanation I think that's probably one of the most difficult things um in you know in this in this study it was trying to work out actually what makes that explanation different to that explanation mm. um but I have to say the diagram placement was um was quite a big thing I think um just one general thing that um we are kind of thinking about um at OUP you know as a practical apl application is putting anything that's important but not putting it in the margin because um yes. you know it just isn't isn't um you know read I think in my interview study it came out that um students said that they read everything on the page when they were stuck that was the main reason when they read everything on the page otherwise they just kind of read what's in front of them um so yes. I think it's important that if you have something that you want people to read like just get it in the main body of the text don't leave it in the margin <laughs> That's really interesting because I'm, I'm just thinking to some of the GCSE textbooks I've seen or even the revision guys and the top tips are inevitably in the margin. I can picture them now. And yeah, you're you're right. It, it makes so much sense now to think, well, your eyes aren't naturally going to be drawn to, to, to the left or the right. You're looking at the main body. That's very yeah. interesting. I think you do that think that you just read the whole of the page. But mm. I think when you're actually in that moment, you're reading that, you know, you're, you've got only got a limited time, haven't you? As a, as a yes. student, you've got all of these subjects competing for your time and you're like, no, I've just got to get, I'll get the main bolt down. And you don't think, <laughs> you know, you do just kind of go straight down the middle. You don't actually look around. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Well, um, is there anything else you you want to make the listeners aware of in terms of your research into textbooks, Beth, that we haven't had, we haven't covered so far? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not that um, I could fit into like a couple of sentences. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we might have to get you back on, Beth, for more textbook chat, particularly after you've done this next uh, comparative judgment uh, study, because that, that sounds fascinating. Well, well let's, let's begin to wrap things up then with uh, one reflection question, and then I'll hand over to you for your big three. So um, what's an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Um, so oh, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I think it's reading other people's research and realizing that you don't have to fully agree with them or sort of be fully committed to their um, perspective. I think that's probably one of the biggest things I've learned because you, you kind of, um, you feel like you should follow someone's, you know, um, analysis methods completely, or you should, um, think how someone thinks about textbooks, um, and you should really follow their perspective down to a T. But I think actually one of the the best bits is that you can, as long as you can um, explain and be transparent and show that you're informed about the decisions you're making, um, actually, like your interpretation is part of what makes your research. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. <laughs> that's fascinating. Brilliant answer. And, and finally, Beth, what are your big three? So what either websites, blog posts or books would you recommend our listeners check out? And as ever, I'll put links to these in the show notes page. Um, so I mentioned briefly um, the writing workshop, which has been a little bit of a, a saviour, I think, for, for me, especially during um, the the lockdown is that, um, you know, we, we have this community of and it's not just about writing, but it's about like research in general. And it's this really great, um, yeah, great community of talking about writing, which I think is quite like, it is a big part of your research. And um, that, that all came about from reading Barbara Sarnica's The Writing Workshop. Um, which everyone will be sick of me talking about because <laughs> I talk about it all the time. It's a brilliant book and um, it kind of really, really helped me um, as a second year learning more about um, reading and more about writing and research and just giving you um, some really like honest advice and not just making you think, you know, making you realise that you're not alone in some of the things that you're feeling as a young researcher. <laughs> Wow, that, I've never heard of that one. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Great, great first choice. What are you going for for number two? Um, I, I found this difficult to think of some, you know, because um, I've done a lot of work. I talked about the split attention principle, but I've also done a lot of research on the multimedia, um, the principles of multimedia learning. So I was thinking of recommending something to do with that, but I haven't got onto that. So I think probably, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I'd recommend... Um, maybe reading more about um, Weinberg and it's um, Weisner's 2011 paper um, on understanding maths textbooks using reader-oriented theory, um, which is something that I talked about quite a lot at the beginning. Um, nice. And I'll tell you what, Beth, we're going to have to get you back on, you know, to talk about that multimedia principle, because that's something I'm absolutely fascinated about as well. So <laughs> a mental note about that one. Could you just give me the title of that one more time just so I can type this out? Um, understanding maths textbooks using reader-oriented theory. Perfect. Perfect. And what are you going for for number three? Um, so this is actually something which I thought was a little bit um, pandemic-related that might be useful to um, any listeners that are um, in research, um, especially young researchers like me, um, because um, I read this article um, quite sort of near the beginning and it really helped me to um, not feel so pressured in all of this um, when we have our, you know, when we're in lockdown and everyone thinks we should be knuckling down and, and getting on with everything. And, and you can, and I think some days you do, you do knuckle down and you do do a lot of work, but there is days where it kind of all kind of hits you what's going on. So um, it's called Why You Should Ignore All That Coronavirus Inspired Productivity Pressure. 
<laughs> and um, it's just a great article. It's in the Chronicles of Higher Education. And it's just a great article, which just makes you feel, um, you know, makes you realise that we're all human and that we're we're all sort of coping with this this great big thing and that we can just take our time and we will get there. That sounds, yeah, something I definitely need to read. That is that is absolutely fascinating. Um, Beth, this has been an absolute pleasure, this. Um, as I say, it's we've never had a PhD student um, on, on the show to talk about that, and we've never dug deep into textbooks. And as you say, I feel that we've got so much more we need to talk about here. So maybe once you're a bit further into your PhD and you've you've unsco- uncovered a few more gems, it'd be fascinating to, to have you back on the show because, yeah, this, this has been an absolute pleasure. So, Beth, thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to us today. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. I've listened to lots of your podcasts, so um, it felt um, yeah, it felt like an honour coming on here. It's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. That's very good. <laughs> so there you have it. There was my interview with Beth Woolacott. I really enjoyed this one. I'll tell you what, Colin Foster has produced some absolutely incredible guests for this series. I've never met um, any of these guests before, I don't think, apart from Dave Hewitt, who I'm going to speak to in the final episode of this series. So it's often, I mean, I get a bit nervous, I'll be honest with you, doing podcasts with people I've, I've never met before, particularly when it's not face-to-face. Uh, these these were conducted, like, literally not even face-to-face, as in no cameras turned on, just because of the um, the software I use now to try and improve the sound. We don't have any, any face-to-face contact. So it's really awkward. It's, it's tricky sometimes to try and break the ice in those first few minutes before we start the recording, because I was under a lot of time pressure to do these. But all the guests have just been so welcoming and so warm, and, and Beth was no exception. And it's, I'll tell you what, the biggest challenge for me has been keeping these interviews around the kind of one hour, one hour ten mark. Because uh, I could have spoken to these people for absolutely ages. It's just fascinating. And hopefully I'll get a chance to do some more work with them um, again at some point in the future. Anyway, let's uh, reflect a little bit on Beth's uh, conversation. So the first thing to say is, I'll tell you what, I would love to do a PhD. You know, absolutely love it. It's, it's always been in my mind, um, certainly in the last few years, whenever I started diving into educational research when I was writing my first book. But particularly having spoken to Beth, um, it, it seems right up my street that, you know, I'd absolutely love it. Well, what about you? W- w- would you enjoy it? And if so, what, what would your PhD be on? Um, I'll t- tell you one reason I'd really like to do one. My, my best friend from university, uh, he did a PhD. I can't even remember what it was on. Some kind of financial thing. He's, it's money, money, money with him. Anyway, he, he got it from uh, Trinity College Dublin. So now he's doctor, um, and he just he drops that into the conversation all the flipping time. Doctor this, doctor that. He's got the odd free upgrade on flights because he's got the doctor in there. It absolutely does my head in. So for, for, for no other reason than that, it would be nice to be Dr. Craig Barton. But yeah, um, fingers crossed an opportunity will come along at some point in the future. But if you're in a position where this might be something that you can consider, remember, as I said at the top of the show, the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University are offering some funded uh, PhD studentships. There's a link in the show notes my advice if, if if that is something you're considering get in there quick because i'd imagine that that'll prove quite a quite a popular thing amongst uh, teachers and listeners of this show next thing i wanted to talk about was um beth's findings about what makes effective textbooks and what students enjoy and there was two things that really came out the first was something that's be very familiar to, to listeners of this show and also people who've have read my two books and that's the split attention effect Now, um, Beth explained this far better than I ever could, but certainly whenever I think about the split attention effect, my focus is always on 
whenever something is presented using two different modes, whether it's uh, kind of narration and reading or whether it's uh, text and images, I want to make that information as easy to process as possible. So I want to integrate those different modes. So this really comes into play, as Beth was mentioning in, in textbooks, whenever you've got diagrams and text. And I'd never really thought of that before, you know. Um, I've, 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 I've done all this kind of thinking about the split attention effect. And I've, I even used some bad examples from textbooks, but I, I never I never really thought that students would pick up on it, if, if that makes sense. It's one of those things that you know in theory, um, it's going to be easier to process if the text and the images um, are more closely integrated with labels and all that kind of thing. But for students are picking up on this, um, it's, it's just fascinating. It kind of means that that, re that, that finding, that takeaway from cognitive load theory um, might actually, yeah, <laughs> might actually have some real practical applications, which I've always thought it did. But I know that there are many out there who, who don't think that. Now, the other thing, of course, with the split attention effect, and I mentioned this on an er a takeaway from an earlier episode in this series, is it's one of the real practical takeaways from cognitive load theory that, that has changed my day-to-day -day practice in the classroom. So particularly my board work, and I guess this is a direct translation from, from best findings about textbooks, Whenever I'm using diagrams in my board work or, or doing a work solution or something like that, I'm now super careful to uh, carefully integrate any labels, any text, any annotations. So they're really in close proximity uh, to the relevant part of, of that diagram or of that image. So students can focus their attention on that single spot as opposed to having to split their attention between like looking at one part of the board to read the text then trying to find another part of the board where it um, where it, that text relates to and so on. Um, another thing, um, just before I move on to a different aspect of split attention effect, that I've been thinking about over the last couple of years is, is numbering. I think numbering is really important, particularly for annotations. So what I mean by that is, if you're doing a work solution, perhaps it's um, some diagram involving uh, angles or a straight line graph or something like that, and you're, um, you're solving that problem, one thing from the split attention effect is to make sure that the, the solution is carefully integrated within the diagram so students can follow it. But I think another thing is when we're labeling things, let's say there's three steps to this solution and they refer to three different parts of the diagram. Numbering those steps as step one, step two, step three, again, helps focus students' attention at the relevant part of the diagram at the relevant time and then move to the next part um, in, the, in the correct direction, um, in, the correct, uh, in the correct order. And that's particularly important whenever perhaps you're referring to the uh, something towards the bottom of a diagram first, that's the first thing you want students to think about, and then you move to the top of the diagram for the second step. You see, when you do it live in the classroom, the students can follow it and they're making notes and so on. But of course, if students come to look back at that two months down the line, six months down the line, and it's just a diagram with, with labels on it, students perhaps can't remember what they were thinking about first, what step came first. So as well as these carefully integrated labels and annotations, I like to put the step number, number one first, number two first, number three first, so it makes much more sense to students in the future looking back on that, if that makes sense. And it'll be interesting, I've, I've been flicking through my old textbooks, I've got a bookshelf behind me here, uh, full of old textbooks, some some that I used when I was at school and so on. And it's fascinating, you know, some really fall victim of this, this split attention effect. You've got flipping text and diagrams. You need a taxi to get from the text to the diagram in some of them. And some are really good at it, but you don't often see these steps labeled, step one, step two. And it's, it's just something to watch out for, perhaps in board work and in any worksheets and so on and so forth. And of course, the other big one of the split attention effect that 
I was just so bad at for so many years, and I'm still pretty bad at it, is um, making sure that if students are reading something, not talking over the top, not doing any different talk over the top, because then students have got two different sources of information, but they're both being processed in the phonological loop of working memory. They're both auditory information. They're listening to you, and they're trying to read and essentially have that narration going on in their head of the text that they're reading. And that's really problematic to do. So um, they're, they're the two big, big things that I kind of take away from split attention effect. Carefully integrating text and diagrams with labels and numbers, and also not talking while students are reading. But the thing that I've never, never considered before, but it makes perfect sense, is this active voice. And it's fascinating that that students really like that when it appears in textbooks. Now, I've I've written a couple of books, all, all available in good and evil bookstores, and I, I really try um, to, to write in the active voice. It's, it's not like a conscious decision. It's just, I think it's the type of writing that I enjoy and I relate to whenever I read blog posts and things like that. So it's just, I've kind of fallen into that way of writing. But again, it's fascinating to hear that students enjoy that active voice perhaps making them feel like they're more present they're more part of it this is something this is a worked example that's happening now as opposed to something that's happened when the textbook author wrote it if, if that makes sense and again it's something that we can take forward into perhaps our verbal explanations making them active making them really present when we're talking to our students when we're going through these worked examples i always like to as well i don't know about you on this but whenever i'm um, verbalizing an explanation um, or we're going through a worked example, I always like to say, so we do this, and then next thing, we do this, as opposed to, so I do this and I do that, just to make students feel more a part of it, that this is a collective, even though I'm perhaps leading it, it just, I, I find that it just, well, I hope, I've never tested this, but my intuition is, it makes students feel like they're a part of the process as opposed to just observers. And it's interesting if, again, I'd be fascinated. I was just flicking through the textbooks. I didn't see any use of that. It's it's more kind of third-person active voice. But maybe that's something. Um, I don't know. I'm just speculating here at this stage. <laughs> anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and as I say, there's the link to the, um, there's the, the link if you're interested in potentially taking up a PhD or inquiring about it. And yeah, I'd be very jealous uh, for, for the people who managed to take advantage of that opportunity. So all that remains for me to do is thank Beth. I thought she was an absolutely cracking guest. As I say, I could have spoke to her all day. Uh, thanks to Colin Foster for helping me put together this uh, series for the wonderful guests. Uh, thanks to Oxford for sponsoring it. Thanks to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in. Only one more of these to go. Just one more and then the 10-episode miniseries is complete. But I tell you what, we're building up to an absolute cracker. It's Dave Hewitt and it is a real good one. So that will be out very, very shortly. But for now, you take care of yourselves. Bye for now. <laughs>